Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group's Thursday Night Alcoholics and Gods Speaker Step Series. We're going to start this evening with our joke, and we have a special guest. Um, Tom is going to be pulling double duty as our speaker and our joke teller, so please welcome Tom to the stage. So how come you don't join Alcoholics Anonymous on Thanksgiving? All they serve is cold turkey. <laughs> okay. Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation. So please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise that might will distract others. Take this time to get connected to God, let the craziness of the day drift away, and ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. If everybody's ready, let's start the meditation. Thank mm-hmm. you. 
going to do the fog light prayer now. Um, it's not up anywhere, so if you don't know it, just do your best to follow along. <laughs> um, God, let your love shine through me like a fog light. Those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. There is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked Paula to come up to read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one. So it is kind of important to know what one is. Paula? I'm Paula Parton. I'm an alcoholic from Champaign, Illinois. Spiritual experience. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which, upon careful reading, shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of a sudden and spectacular and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety, because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. That's by Herbert Spencer. That's from the big book, page 567, 568. Thank you. Please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so set your phones to airplane meeting mode or just turn them off. 
Um, it's my great pleasure tonight to get to introduce Tom for his 11th session. Um, these last 11 weeks have just really flown by. Um, each and every week it's been evident um, each time that he's spoken that God is really speaking through him to give us a strong message. And I really look forward to hearing what he has to say about the 11th step. So please welcome Tom. Tom and I'm an alcoholic. I like to tell stories, you know. I, I'm a storyteller. Uh, I love the literature. But the biggest reason I love the literature is because I relate what I read in the literature to my own life and the things that have happened to me uh, in this life and in this life of Alcoholics Anonymous which has become a way of life. It didn't start out that way. You know, it was basically out of necessity. I had no place left to go. I, uh, I was at the end of my road, and this was the last house on the block. And what I had to do is I had to surrender. And I don't think that even at the time I understood the implications of what surrender even really was. I think that uh, over time uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous and in the Alcoholics Anonymous way of life, I've come to understand, you know, through experience, the depth of not only my surrender, but also the depth of my own selfishness and self-centeredness. Never really saw things. They became apparent to me through staying sober and through working the steps in Alcoholics Anonymous. I uh, knew a man... And he was, he was a really beautiful man. He, I don't know why I've always taken to these, to these men who are so different than me, who are quiet. <laughs> I don't know why I, I seem to have a reverence for uh, quiet, strong, quiet men who, who they know who they are. And they don't have to pretend to be anybody. Uh, a man like that I knew back in the 80s. I got sober in 1983. And uh, Alcoholics Anonymous was, uh, I've watched, you know, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous 48 years ago. I've been around for a while. And I've watched Alcoholics Anonymous over the years go through stages and uh, this man in the early 80s was in his 80s and uh, he's long, long past long time ago and his name was Ed Hearn he was from Chicago and he started the first uh, treatment in Chicago treatment uh, center in Chicago yeah, when I met him, he was probably 
83, 84 years old. And he was a very quiet man, he would, and he was a real strong Irish Catholic. He would go to Mass every morning, and then he would go to the noon meeting at Central House when it was in the American Legion. And uh, then he would go home, and he would take a nap. And uh, then he would get up and go up the street. He lived down the street from Denny's, and I lived down the street from Denny's, too, in Boynton Beach, Right on when it used to be right on Federal Highway, it's gone now. I lived on Third Street alongside the tracks and two rooms back there. And uh, when I'd come in from work and construction, I'd go into Denny's and I'd sit down with him and talk with him. And uh, we were in the noon meeting. Uh, you know, meetings a long time ago basically were they were literature meetings. Or speaker meetings. You know, we we read the, we didn't need to have somebody hold our hand and take us through the big book because we went through the big book in groups. <clears throat> we did big book studies, and in Central House we sat and we read the book, and then we had discussion on it. We sat and we read the twelve and twelve in meetings, and we had discussion on it, and we had speaker meetings. And then discussion meetings started to become popular. And I started to see a difference in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because these discussion meetings were about situations. A situation that people were in in their life. Like uh, somebody disrespected them. Or cut them off. Or stole their cookies at the treatment place where they were. Well, there wasn't even really too many treatment places. I mean, there wasn't halfway houses, you know. I mean, in the old uh, central house in the American Legion, I, I, you don't know how many men I saw get sober who slept in abandoned cars. They didn't have a halfway house, but there was a bunch of abandoned cars out back. And they, and they got sober sleeping in those abandoned cars until they could start to work, you know. And they come to meetings. They were right there behind in the backyard of the American Legion in Delray, sleeping in abandoned cars. Chris is shaking. It's had me and Chris know each other over 30 years. He was just a kid then. He remembers that. You know, and, uh, and there seemed to become this, like, mantra. Uh, whenever anybody in a discussion meeting would talk about situations that they had problems in their life with, the mantra would be, well, you know, you're powerless. You know, you're powerless. You're powerless over people, places, and things. You know, I mean, like, this is the, this is the reason you have a problem. The reason you have a, in other words, the, it became like the reason you had a problem in the talk back from people in the meetings was, well, you're powerless over people, places, and things. It's not your fault. It's not your fault, you know. You're powerless. You're powerless. And and Ed was a very calm, quiet man. And the, and the noon meeting was supposed to be a big book meeting, not a discussion meeting. And uh, and everybody had their big books all in front of them. And the meeting wasn't going that way because people wanted to have discussions about situations and have a bitch session. And all of a sudden, Ed flipped out. I, n I never saw him act this way. 
he flipped out and he slammed his hand down on the big book, on his table, and he said, show me in this book where it says that your problem is people, places, and things. Because that's not what this book says. What this book says is your problem is you want power over people, places, and things. That's what the problem is. The problem is not other people, places, and things, and you being powerless over them. The problem is you want power. This is the problem. The problem with me, I mean, you know, I stopped having a problem with drinking. I'm sober 38 years. I don't have a problem with drinking. God removed the obsession for me to drink and to use a long, long time ago. So if I was just here about drinking, why would I still be here? Why would I still be going to meetings every day if this was just about drinking? That's not what it's about. It's about a disease I have called alcoholism, a disease that centers in my mind when it talks to me. And when it talks to me, it tells me the same thing all the time. You know how to run your life. You know how to run everybody else's life. And you know the way life ought to run. And if everything would just run your way, it would be a wonderful life. And what causes this problem is a spiritual malady. I have a spiritual malady. Because I don't want to surrender. That's the real problem. And acceptance is not the answer. That's not what the answer is. You may think so because you hear that all the time, that you need to accept and accept life on life's terms, okay? But you see, that's just one guy's opinion in a story in the back of the big book. That's not my truth. I learned a new truth at about... 17, 18 years sober, I can't remember. Man comes up to me because, you know, I was one of these big quoters. I like to quote and sound good. You know, who doesn't want to sound good in an AA meeting? We all want to sound good. We all want to sound like what we're, we know what we're talking about. And I get up in there and I quote that. Well, you got to accept life on life's terms, you know. Got to accept life on life's terms. The way it is. You just got to put up with it. That guy walks up to me after the meeting. He said, let me ask you something, Tom. Do you think that it might make more sense to accept life on God's terms? You know, he says, God doesn't make too hard of terms. What are you going to surrender to? You going to surrender to life? Am I, am I to go through life, white knuckle in life? Like for years I spent around Alcoholics Anonymous, never getting sober, white-knuckling sobriety. Just putting up with it because I have to. Well, I have to accept life on life's terms. That's what I got to do. I'm, I'm, I'm just have to do that. You know, it's not easy, but I, I guess I'm going to have to put up with it. Instead of learning a spiritual way of life. That's what I had to come to. I had to come to learn a spiritual way of life. You know, I was about, 
I was about four years, I was around, probably right after I was around four years sober. And I had gotten pretty good at letting go and letting God have most of the things in my life. Most, most of the things, okay? One thing that I wasn't going to let God put his hand on or, or uh, have control over was my relationship with a woman. And I had this woman, and she just wouldn't do things my way. And she just didn't understand that if she would do things my way, she'd be happy. And I'd be happy too. And it'd be a wonderful life if she would just behave and do things the way I wanted to do things. And this had been going on a couple years. And uh, I went into Denny's one afternoon. Ed was sitting there. And I sat down with Ed, and I, uh, I started ranting. I was ranting all about this situation. I was in this situation, you see. And I started ranting about this situation. You know, this woman, Ed, you don't, you just, I just don't understand her, you know. I just don't know why she does these things and why this can't, why can't she do things different, why blah, 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 blah. And he just sat there drinking his coffee not even looking at me. And and I was expecting Ed to do one of two things. I was expecting him either to uh, tell me that it was going to be all right and pat me on the back and feel sorry for me. Or I was expecting him to kick me in the butt and tell me to stop feeling sorry for myself. And after about this ten, after about this ten minute rant was over with, God bless him. He sat his coffee cup down, and he turned, and he looked me in the eye, and he said, "Tom, did you ever think of asking God to do anything for anybody but you?" And all of a sudden, I got an awakening. A really big awakening. Because I realized a truth about me. I never had. I never asked God to do anything for anybody but me. I never asked God to bless anybody or help my parents. I'm four years sober. I've been through, you know, up, I'm up to the 11th step now. You know? It's taken me that long to get up to the 11th step. That's why he became my 11th step sponsor. I realized the depth of my selfishness and self-centeredness, just how deeply it goes, how ingrained the selfishness is in me. You know, That's why I took to the saying when I heard Bob Anderson say it on tape years later. I don't know who you think about all day, but I know who I think about. I think about me. I wake up thinking about me, and I go to bed at night thinking about me. The only time I think about you is how it relates to me.
And that's, uh, that's what this spiritual sickness is for me. And I'm only speaking for myself that that's where my spiritual disease is. Is I'm stuck on me. You know, that's the wonderful thing about Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, this altruistic society. We, when I came here, I didn't, I was kind of a rum dum, you know. I was kind of pickled. And they told me AA was a, was a, altruistic uh, society, I thought that meant you had to start telling the truth. You couldn't lie, you know. I didn't know that what altruism was was all about giving. And he, Ed, Ed, Ed pulled out, he used to carry one of those long uh, leather wallets for suit coats that men, businessmen would keep it. My dad had one. And he opened it up and inside of the wallet was probably about a dozen holy cards, St. Francis holy cards. And he reached in there and he pulled out that St. Francis holy card and he turned them over from the picture side to the prayer side. And he said, you see this, Tom? This is the prayer of St. Francis. And I suggest you start to use it and put it into your prayer life on a daily basis and maybe your character will start to change. And you'll stop thinking about yourself all the time. You know, Ed was right. You know, that became a practice. I have to practice this way of life. It's not something that, that just remains with me. It's, it's something that is it's on a daily basis. Uh, I've been uh, doing some reading. I was, uh, I love, uh, this is an old the Sermon on the Mount by Emmett Fox, and uh, it belonged to a man who, when he passed, left all his books to us. He's, uh, he was special, you know. He, uh, when I first went to Prescott, Arizona, Four years ago, I was looking for meetings, and uh, I had the intergroup meeting list, and I came across a meeting on Saturday at 11 o'clock in the morning called Hole in the Soul, and I said, well, that's my meeting right there. That's my meeting, Hole in the Soul. I'm a Hole in the Soul guy. You know. All my life, I had this big hole. I tell the story all the time, and I try to stuff it with everything, you know with all the materialism. Because we, we think we can fix ourselves. And that's how I got in this, in this mess, is because I thought that I could fix myself. You know, if I could just get everybody to do what I want, if I could just arrange all the players, if I could just acquire the things that I know that I need to be happy. You know, I, ne- I need those things. I tell myself that all the time. I need that car. I need that woman. I need that house. I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. And even after I got sober, I would have obsessions. You know, for years I would have obsessions. You know, I think I said this in the step series 
early on, you know. First, I was obsessed with, uh, with dogs, you know. I loved dogs. I had big dogs all my life, and so I became obsessed with them, you know. And I was just going to get this one American Bulldog, okay. I ended up with 18. 18 adults. And I became a breeder, and I... I got my wife into breeding American bulldogs, and I, I got a partner that used to breed horses, and and I'm you know I mean I, I that's all I can think about is 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 reading every book I can read, and and just constantly constantly obsessed over these dogs, and uh, then I got I got uh, obsessed with guns. And, you know, all I could do was think about every gun and read every gun magazine and go to every gun show. And I start buying and selling guns. And I'm just, I, I, learn, every, I learn everything I can learn. Okay? Become obsessed with that. You know? It's a, it's a disease of the mind. Because why do I, why do, I do this? Why do I become obsessed with outside things? Well, my sponsor, George, he's got a a great saying. He says, when the interior's inferior, we fix up the exterior. That's what we do. Bottom line. It's just that simple. So all my life, you know, I mean, what got me into this mess in the first place is all my life, I was, I was, I was full of self-condemnation. I never felt right. I never felt like I was good enough or that I was worthy, you know. I have this this uh, uh, affliction of self-loathing, you know. It's, you know, I can't, I can't do good enough. I can't be good enough. My mind tells me these things, and then I want to escape Way before I ever took a drink, as a kid, I was escaping. I read, I read all, all you know, every uh, uh, Hardy Boys and every Doc Savage, you know. And I mean, you know, I read every Edgar Rice Burroughs, and I knew who Conan was before any kid knew who Conan was. I read every Conan book, and you know, I just I escaped through reading. At least it taught me to read. It taught me to do that. It put me into a position like when I ran the union, you know, my brother told my sons one time, they, he said, you know, your father's a dangerous man. And they, my sons say, what do you mean he's a dangerous man? Why is he a dangerous man? And my brother said, because he's self-taught. I'm self-taught. I knew things when I went to people. I wasn't just a pick and shovel guy because I taught myself. I read everything. I used to read two newspapers every day. Because my father said, if a guy who, who, who a guy doesn't know what's going on, if he doesn't know what's going on, <laughs> you got to know what's going on. I loved history, you know, but I always wanted to, to live outside of myself. I never wanted to be who I was. That's the reason why I would become obsessed with things. And the only thing that really that really started to to change that was to become to become 
a big practitioner of meditation and prayer. And, and I meditate upon prayer. I use prayer and meditate upon it. I use literature and meditate upon it, you know, so that I can, and, and it's almost as if I switched, I switched obsessions, okay? <laughs> so it's okay. There's things that are healthy obsessions, okay? If you want to do something about your, you know, your spiritual malady, then I suggest you become obsessed and practice in a way of life, you know, that will help to get rid of that instead of trying to run away from the feelings that you have. It's okay that you, you, you don't feel right. You know, my mentor, who, who was a wonderful man, the man who put my hand in God's hand, Dennis Organ, he died with 56 years at 93. He gave away 27 halfway houses in his life. Gave them away. Who does that? People like him. Very strong, born-again Christian. He's the man that looked in my face and said to me, you think you're a tough guy, don't you, Tom? I said, I can handle myself. He said, well, I'll tell you, Tom, who a tough guy was. Jesus Christ was a tough guy. He took whatever they threw at him, and he loved them anyway. Can you be that tough? I said, boy, you're asking an awful lot out of me. I would go to him with about men I wanted to murder. And by the time we were finished, we'd be on our knees, and I'd be in tears, and we'd be praying, asking for forgiveness. I don't want to live that way. Who wants to live like that? Who wants to live? You know, I didn't get sober to be miserable. And, and I don't want to be miserable. I want to be what God has a plan for me to be. And that's happy, joyous, and free. And he has a plan for me. And all I have to do is follow that plan. I talked about it last week. You know, God's will for me isn't any different than it is for everybody. You know, God, he doesn't care whether you're a carpenter or you're a brain surgeon. It doesn't make any difference to God whether you make your money as a carpenter or make your money as a brain surgeon. Or if he wants you to live in Fort Lauderdale or if he wants you to live in Prescott, Arizona. He doesn't care where you're going to live. All he cares about is that you're happy because he loves you. He loves you unconditionally. He loves you beyond your understanding. Human beings are not meant to understand the depth of God's love for us. I, I was given mercy. I learned from a man that went to the federal penitentiary who was a good friend of mine, a criminal like me, who said, you know what, Tom, I didn't get justice, I got mercy. And that's what I got. I got God's mercy. I uh, I want to talk about something because I feel the need to talk about it. You know, I uh, I'm concerned that there's a that there's another another stage that seems to be afoot. I don't see it so much here, but out west. I never ended a meeting in my life here, and God bless you that you end every meeting with the Lord's Prayer. 
Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer. Taught us how to pray on the Sermon on the Mount. When he gave the sermon, it's when he gave the Lord's Prayer. I would have a lot of meetings. They don't want to end the meeting with the Lord's Prayer. There seems to be a big secular uh, movement afoot in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, this, yeah, Alcoholics Anonymous isn't religious. It's not an organized religion. You know, it's the same thing with the, with the literature. Oh, well, that's not AA approved. You can't, well, what are you going to say? You can't read the Bible because it's not AA approved? I mean, after all, that's where this program came from. Whether you like that or not, I'm sorry. Sorry. But this is about God. How do I take, how do I take a power greater than myself and in a program that's about going to a power greater than myself to be relieved of the disease of alcoholism if I take away, if I say we're going to take that away. We're not going to use that. We're going to be practical. We're just going to use psychological things and psychiatry and medication, you know. What it begins to sound like is treatment, not AA. Because treatment's not AA. Maybe some treatment centers go, you know, are strong AA treatment centers, and that's great. But they're businesses. You know, I had a good friend a long time ago. I started saying, I said to him, you know, he'd been a, ther- in ther- a therapist for years. I said, I don't understand. Why, why is it that uh, it seems like now everybody that comes in Alcoholics Anonymous has got depression? They all got depression. And they're all on they're all on some medication for depression. And and uh, my buddy told me he said, "Well, Tom, that's because they found out they could double whack the insurance companies. Not only hit them the insurance companies for alcoholism, but hit them for depression too. Make more money. It's like I just finished uh, two and a half years as the as the H and I chair out in Prescott. They had nothing going on." I stood up and I said, I'll take the position. How come the only meeting that you got going on is, is, is at the VA hospital? And Prescott is a town with lots of treatment centers in it. And the, and the office manager of Intergroup got up and said, well, she said, we used to have meetings in the treatment centers, but they found out they could get billable hours by bringing people to the meetings. And they didn't want us in there anymore. I said, well, I'll... I'll take the committee. And I started a committee and I started pushing, you know, to get the meetings back in. And and we were pretty successful at it, but you just had to take the bull by the horn. You know, that's a service work. You know, the, this service work in Alcoholics Anonymous has got such importance to me. It's what's kept me sober all these years. What do you think the percentage of people in Alcoholics Anonymous is that do the service work? About 5% do all the service work. You know, I told a guy, I says, well, he says, what do you want me to do here? I said, well, you can make the coffee. He said, well, how long do I got to do that? I said, I don't know. I've been doing it seven years, so you figure it out, you know. <laughs> About time the spirit of rotation came. I mean, it's a small group, okay, but, you know, and I could get there before anybody else, and I like coffee. 
I like the way that uh, that Emmett Fox breaks down the Lord's Prayer. And after after he writes the Sermon on the Mount, then he writes the breakdown on the Lord's Prayer. Why the term "Our Father" is so important. He says, in one paragraph, he says, do you not see that at a single blow, it swept away? To say our father, not my father. This, this is, when I got rid of my punishing God, that's what I, you know, they told me, you can call your higher power whatever you want. Well, I need a loving God. A God that would love me like my father would love me. Unconditionally. And I had a great father. He loved it. He was he perfect? No. He couldn't tell you he loved you. Like I said last last week, you know, he, he never he never said he loved me until he was on his deathbed at ninety one years old. But he was always there for you. I don't care what kind of trouble you were in, he was always there for you. So why wouldn't I want my God, you know, and I like this, you know. Sit down. Sit down. Take a piece of paper. Write down who you want your God to be. It don't have to be, you know, this God that they boogeyman God. I got rid of that God. He was a monster. Who wants a God that's a monster? I want a God that loves me unconditionally and forgives me no matter what. Like my father. So he became my father. So he... In the Lord's Prayer, we say our Father. So that right away, that tells us, you know, that he's not just my Father, but he's our Father. He's our Father, the whole world, all of us people. He's all our Father. Do you not see that it's a single blow It swept away 99% of all the old theology with its avenging God? It's chosen and favored individuals. It's eternal hellfire and all the other horrible paraphernalia of man's diseased and terrified imagination. God exists. And the eternal, all-powerful, all-present God is the loving father of mankind. Of all mankind. Look at the problems that we've got. Why do we have all this tribalism? All these different, you know, they're different than me. They're not the same as me. My God doesn't, doesn't want things to be that. Not the God I, I believe in. The God of, I believe in loves everybody. He doesn't pick and choose who he loves. He's our father. I believe in the brotherhood of man under the fatherhood of God. That means we're all in this together. If we, if we had more of that and less, you know, this is mine, this is who I am, you're different than me, we don't need to give those people anything. Why are we, why, you know, it's, it's nothing but hate. It's not love. All of that is just hate. Give you a grievance, something to hate people about. We don't need anything to hate people about. It's too damn easy to hate people. It's easy to do that. 
It's hard to do what Dennis asked me to do, to take whatever they gave me, whatever they did to me, and love them anyway. That's, that's not easy to do. So I, I never got anything that ever that was good for me never came to me easy. It was hard. It took the pain of my alcoholism for me to get sober. And it's taken the pain of my, you know what, I said it last week, my a-holism to change my character. Okay? I've never changed out of virtue. I've only changed out of pain. I've had to find out what didn't work to find out what does work. So that father of mine, he's in heaven. He's, he's in that place. And I'm in this place. You know, that's why that, that gets me over, like, blaming God for what goes on in nature and in the world. You know, he's not up, my God's not of this world. He's of another world. He exists on another plane. But he gives me strength. There's no special dispensation in life. God doesn't pick and choose between good and bad people. Sickness and death can strike anywhere. Anybody. I mean, you know, you could be the greatest saint in the world, you know. You die. You suffer. You get disease. Everybody gets the same deal, really. If you're going to turn around, you're going to blame God for that. That just gives you another excuse to hate. And you end up then a God-hater like I was when I came here, which was my spiritual malady, which is what made me sick. It's what made me sick spiritually is because I had the wrong God, and I had to get the right God. We're talking about prayer and meditation. You know, I'm not... I'm not talking about some magic. It's not magic. Okay? It's where it's what I'm putting my head into. If I put my head into guns and dogs, you know, that's all I'm going to think about is guns and dogs. Or whatever other obsession I have, you know, Maseratis. Uh, you know, uh, getting a beautiful tan. Wearing fancy clothes, going to the gym and getting all pumped up and thinking, you know, this is, this is going to bring me happiness. But you know what? I got the hole in the soul. It never brought me any happiness. It never worked because I finally got to the place where I saw that it didn't work. And what did I do? Instead of going this way towards meditation and prayer, I went to just getting more stuff. Okay, well, this ain't working anymore. Let me go try this. And then, why is it that the last thing that alcoholics in AAers, the last thing that AAers finally going to say, okay, well, let me try this prayer and meditation, all right? I mean, I've been doing all this other stuff for years, and it doesn't seem to be getting me anywhere. And uh, I'm listening to these old timers, and they're saying, you know what? I got serenity. Nothing really bothers me anymore. 
you know what? It, nothing pretty much does bother me anymore. I love people. I, I say, you know, my wife has a wonderful prayer that I love so much, and I use it all the time. She got it from somebody. I don't know, but it works. God bless them, and God change me. Okay? Because they're not the ones who need changing. I am. I'm the one who needs to be changed. You know, I am a big believer in the spiritual axiom. Anytime I'm disturbed, I'm the one that's got the problem. They're not the ones that have the problem. I am. So what am I going to do about it? You know, if I if I meditate upon what's right, what's good, you know, I read a couple of uh, little daily readings every morning. I meditate upon that. I walk one of the one of the most peaceful things. You know, I love live. I live out in the mountains, big ponderosa pines, and I walk the trails. You know, and my mind is clear. There's nothing that's going on in it. And I'm just looking at the birds and, you know, the sky. I'll sit on a rock, you know, and I'll watch the ravens. I love the ravens, great big ravens, you know. My brother came out to Arizona. He said, boy, these crows are big. We grew up, we grew up in the cornfields. <laughs> Them ain't crows, okay? They're ravens. They're my spiritual bird, the raven is. I, uh, I just love nature, and I contemplate. I'm a contemplative meditator, meditator, you know. I like to contemplate, and, and what do I see, you know, when, I, when I'm doing this? I see God. That's who I see. I make this connection with my God, and he reminds me, and it reminds me, she reminds me, whatever you want to call it, that I'm just a part of. I'm all a part of this. And I have, listen, I have nothing, I have nothing to be concerned about. The, the fish eat, the birds eat, all the animals eat. They're all cared for. Am I any less than them? I'm cared for too. I've been cared for all along. It used to be that anything I ever let go of in all the years that I've been sober, early, you know, early on for many years, anything I ever let go of had claw marks all over it. I held on to it so tight, trying to, trying to make it be what it, what it was supposed to be, give me happiness, and it never did. You know, I... You can't expect me to make you happy. I can't make you happy. I can't make my wife happy, my children happy. I can't make you happy. Don't have an expectation of me to make you happy because all that is is a premeditated resentment. You're going to put yourself in a problem if you expect me to make you happy because I'm not going to. Or if you expect someone or somebody, you know, to bring you that. I never found it there. 
I found peace and serenity in a daily practice of prayer. I haven't got the time to get into all. I'd love to sit and just go through the whole Lord's Prayer and, and talk about all the seven pieces of it. I haven't got time to do that. But you can do that. You can do just what I do. You can start today. You can start tonight. You can go home and be quiet and get in a little room and turn off all the noise. Just turn it all off. You don't need to listen to anything. Have any music playing. Maybe you want to light a candle or do something, you know, that that helps you to, to get into a place or a space and sit there and just think about God. And think about how much God loves you. That he's brought you here. That he's brought you to this place to be sober and to be happy. He's brought you and he's not going to let you go. He didn't save your life just to let you go. He has a plan for you. He wants you to be happy, joyous, and free. And he says, here, just take this. Take a couple of prayers. Take a little time. Sit down, you know, and be quiet. Tell your mind to be quiet. Turn it off. Focus. You can focus on a candle. Just focus on the light, on the candle. Focus on something to clear your mind. There's all kinds of ways to meditate. There's no right way and wrong way. Don't let people tell you that, that there's, this is the only way. There are a lot of ways. All that's important is that you find your way. You find your way. You find what works for you. And don't stop looking until you get there. Because once you get there, you'll say to yourself, how come I wasn't doing this all along? Who wouldn't want to have a quiet mind? After all, you know, I love Eckhart Tolle, and he's all about being in the now, and that's where I find God. I find God in the present moment. My God is with me right now. I'm not down the road from here. I'm not in where I was an hour ago. I'm here right now with you, talking to you, being with you, because this is where my God wants me to be. I gave up my life a long time ago because it was rotten. It was no good. It was selfish and self-centered and obsessed with myself.
and then pleasure. One of my favorite uh, quotes is from Cicero, who was a, an ancient, you know. These things that are principles and wisdom and stuff, they're not new. They're ancient. They've always been true. Cicero said, if you labor for good, the labor leaves you, but the good remains. But if you pursue pleasure through evil, the pleasure leaves, but the evil remains. So what am I going to put my head into? Into a bunch of uh, self-seeking, selfish, self-centered obsessions and believe that that is going to bring me happiness? It never worked before. What makes me think it's going to work now? No. I'm going to stay with this way of life. I found it works real good when I work it. Thanks for letting me share. Let's thank Tom one more time. It is now time for our secretary report. Please welcome up Mark. Hey, guys. My name is Mark. I'm your recovered alcoholic secretary for the evening. Keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going to go around. While the baskets are going around, I didn't personally ask, but I was recommended a guy named Mikey, if you'd come up here and read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. Mikey, I'm an alcoholic. Recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. We have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. Page 23. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Thanks. Thank you, Mikey. 1940-style big book sponsorship. From the fourth to the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to A and really tried, 50% of them got sober at once and remained that way. 25% of them sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with A showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. Can I please see a show of hands of recovered alcoholics? All righty. Does anyone in the, in the room need a sponsor? We're actively looking for a sponsor. No one, huh? All right. Well, if you do, don't be afraid to get with someone after the meeting who had their hands raised. There's quite a bit of people here. Let's get these folks back to God. Please join us Monday nights. Well, first, actually, uh, Violet has an announcement for us about the intergroup appreciation.
dinner. So. Hi, guys. I'm Violet. I'm an alcoholic. Um, so I'm an intergroup rep. And a part of, like, it supports local a, the local A organization. And our literature sales, unfortunately, don't support us as much as we'd like to, but our special events do. And on April 23rd, it's a Saturday at 5 p.m., we have the um, AA Appreciation Banquet in uh, Tropical Acres in Dania Beach. It's $50 for a ticket. I have tickets available, um, cash, Venmo, Zelly uh, today, so you can get them. And, it w- and we have, it's like a four-course meal. It's very fancy. You get to dress up. Here, a double-speaker meeting. Um, there's a, a raffle. I've personally won a really nice raffle with gift cards in it. Um, so it's a lot of fun. And if you want it, I'm dressed in bright pink, so you can't miss me. Thank you, Violet. So please join us Monday nights right here on the stage. Uh, the Big Book Study Meeting where the Big Book comes alive. Fellowships at 630. The Big Book Study starts at 715. We'd love to see everyone there. Also to, our, or to my right on the piano, we have CDs, mugs, large print big books, little red books, and big book dictionaries for sale. I hear we're running a St. Paddy's Day special, is that right? Two for five mugs. I mean, nothing celebrates your Irish heritage like a couple of AA big book mugs. So if, if anyone's interested, don't be shy. Uh, <laughs> we meet every Thursday night, normally downstairs, sometimes up here, but here at this church. So <laughs> got it. Starting promptly at 7.15, again, fellowship, 6.30 p.m. We ask you to be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bell. See you all next week. Thanks. We have tonight's session and all past speakers' podcasts online for free at alcoholicsandgod.org. Just in case you were not paying attention to Mark, I'd like to re-announce we'd like to invite everyone to our Monday night big book study in this room. Um, And those who wish to thank tonight's speaker, please line up during this center aisle. So let's go ahead and close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father. Thank you. Body's heavy, soul is thirsty, body's aching. I am desperately in need of restoration.
is when you laughing.
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. See the light 
lessons when I go to sleep at night and I dream now. Yeah, I dream now. And everything's alright. <laughs> oh, man. Going on 10 years old, that song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye.
Thank you very much.